Well, it's uh, maybe a little bit of a harder transition to go from powerful stories like they both had to talking about government and what we're, t what we're dealing with. But in any event, uh, we're going to do it anyway. That's uh, kind of the focal point of where we're at in Romans chapter 13. I want to uh, read a couple of texts and then kind of launch us into this and to try to discover, again, another level of what we've been talking about is how we as Christians ought to relate to government and what it looks like. We're in Romans chapter 13, verse 5, but I'm going to supplement that with a text out of 1 Peter so that we get sort of the bigger picture of what we're dealing with. Romans 13, 5 says this, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. 1 Peter chapter 2, Be subject to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to shame the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I was reading this week uh, a story uh, related to the treasuries, uh, the government treasury department has what they call a government's conscience fund. Uh, wasn't really aware of it till I ran across this story, but apparently it represents a unique service uh, for those who've cheated on Uncle Sam. Uh, the fund is now at about $3 million after 160 years. I don't know the exact date of this writing, but it was probably within, I'm sure, the last uh, 15 or 20 years. It started back in 1811 uh, when a New York man sent a $6 check uh, who said in his note that he was suffering the most painful pains of conscience. The biggest year of the conscience settlement, no one knows the reason, was 1950 when $370,285 came into the government. Uh, obviously, apparently, people had cheated on their taxes or hadn't pulled the full amount or something else and were repaying it. The largest contribution was $14,250 from London in the late 19th century. Along with the money came notes of explanation and appeals for forgiveness. Don't see that happening too often today, do you? I'll sleep better now, wrote one donor. I have my suitcase packed for heaven. Another confided, I want to have a clear conscience. And another said, I'd hate to burn in hell for a couple of bucks. <laughs> well, I hate to say it this way, but our conscience has come a long way since then, hasn't it? Uh, the danger in our culture is that even for Christians, it's very easy for what used to be something that people might be very sensitive to in terms of integrity and living above reproach and living the way God wants them to, to now be something that even in the past seems foolish to us. Because we've, we've come past that. We know that in our own platitudes that probably the government has ripped us off more than them, so if we rip them off, it's no big deal. And, and how our conscience is formed is often affected by different variables. Clearly, our culture affects us even as Christians. And so what used to bother us now is acceptable. It's the way we live and our values and something that back in the 1960s for something that Christians would never think about doing now, we would do without even blinking an eye. 
Sometimes it's under the guise of how we can become relevant to the culture, so we keep trying to be like the culture in order to think that that's a way that we win people to Christ, and then we simply end up adopting their ways of life rather than converting people to the gospel. But the gospel is critical in the Christian life, and if we lose track of it, we are in great danger of self-harm. In fact, it's one of the most vital elements of our Christian life is to have a conscience that is sifted through the purity of the presence of Christ so that regardless of what changes around us, that we always keep our life on the North Star, fixated on the person of Christ. And yet it's one of the most difficult things for us to think through in terms of the way we ought to live. Often you will hear this, especially in the book of Hebrews, where God's people who were supposed to following God end up hardening their heart and were disobedient to God and lost all of the privileges and the benefits that God wanted to bestow upon them because they'd seared their conscience with stubbornness and hard-heartedness and idolatry and the things of the ways of the world to such an extent that they stopped listening to God. And one of the the great things that we need to do in our own walk with Christ is regularly examine what's molding and shaping our conscience. Because there's nothing more dangerous than a Christian whose conscience has been seared to the voice of God and who thinks that they're okay by themselves and they don't need God to tell them what to do. And so I want to begin to simply sort of begin to work through this idea of conscience. I want to start by simply defining it. It's actually used in three different ways And when you look at the scriptures. The idea of conscience is the idea of being self-aware. It's the idea of sentience, that I am aware of my own existence. I have something that works within me, and I will propose to you because of the image of God, that makes me aware that I exist. I mean, if you really give some time and thought to it, it's amazing that I am aware of my own existence in this body, and I haven't been here before. I, I could have been born at any time in history, in any kind of culture, under all, any kind of circumstances, and yet I was born to Ken and Dorothy Little, 1960, up in Calgary, Alberta, and I came into this existence, and I'm aware of who I am. It's a staggering reality, and yet critical one in understanding that we are the creation of the fingerprints of a holy and personal God who has given us life. And and such ideas and theories like evolution that we're nothing more than a sheer accident with no intelligent designer or creator is absolutely beyond my comprehension. I have no idea how someone can embrace a theory like that and, and, and sense their own sense of value. But the second thing I want you to notice is that the idea of conscience is this basic idea of sense of right and wrong. It's what we call our moral compass. Uh, There are lots of things that would indicate that. If we went back to Romans chapter 2, which I will simply flip back briefly to, uh, the last section in chapter 2 identifies this sense of what I call intrinsic revelation. It says, Paul's writing, and he writes, he says, for when the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who do not have the law that the Jews had, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they should show their work, the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately, alternately accusing or else defending them. 
on that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. So the idea of conscience is, is intrinsic in every human being, whether they're a believer or not. Now, what happens in our culture is that our cultures are molded by something. It's molded by the values of our families, it's molded by the culture, it's molded by social media and television. All these things tend to influence or they're trying to get at our heart and our conscience. And so there's always a constant battle of what it is. But even unbelievers, regardless of how hard it gets, are created, as it were, come into this world with what I call intrinsic revelation, a law written in our hearts because of the image of God. He has woven that into the fabric of our existence. And all humanity possess it. And so this idea of, of a conscience of being right and wrong is intrinsic in the idea of, of our, our sense of who we are. But then there's a third element of this that falls squarely in our lap, and that is a divine moral compass. When we come to Christ, there is a change of going from being dead to alive. We are now given this new nature that God gives to us, and because of the Spirit of God, we, our conscience is now revitalized and renewed, and it's refreshed in the framework of a divine God. And so our conscience, it may, at times, as we heard this morning, sometimes we, we struggle with realigning our life, but there's something within us that knows that when things are wrong, and we have God's word, of course, that clearly communicates how we're supposed to live. The problem for most of us as Christians is that we tend to think way too much. It's like Adam and Eve. They had a clear moral compass. God said, you can have everything that I've created in this garden. I just don't want you to touch this one thing. And of course, with the help of Satan, they started thinking too much and they talked themselves in with some help into saying, well, it looks good to eat. There doesn't seem to be anything wrong. It'll make us more like God. Why won't we do it? And that's why we're in the mess that we're in now. But this divine moral conscience is critical in terms of our walk with Christ. And yet it's one of the often most neglected aspects of our own walk with God. I mean, we, can, we have a sense and we term it different things. We can be in a circumstance where we hear a message and we feel guilty. We don't like feeling guilty so we can easily ignore it. We can push it off because we don't like that feeling. Sometimes it feel, we feel condemned because we know that what someone is talking about, I'm doing something in my life that clearly violates that truth from Scripture, and so we feel condemned. And so we don't like feeling condemned, so it's easy to push it off. There's a myriad of things that go on, but the still small voice of the Spirit of God often whispers into our heart and mind when think, something is not right, and we have to learn to listen to that. Conscience is not us left to our own, but it is that which is empowered and nurtured by the Spirit of God. Now, when it comes to the idea of conscience, let me try to defend it in terms of what he says here in verse 5. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. He's talking about being subject to governing authorities, this, the primary one being uh, kings and, and people who rule over the land. That's what he says in verse uh, 1 and 2. Uh, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. And so at the beginning here, we need to recognize that our conscience needs to be attuned to God for us to properly submit to authority, human authorities that we live under. If we don't, we could be anywhere in the spectrum in our attitude towards government. And God, Paul writes to us and comes back and says, first of all, this isn't just my opinion, 
I mean, one of the, the great struggles of, of hermeneutics these days is that culture is almost transcending the scriptures. We can find cultural elements back when this was written to help clarify truth, and the more we seem to clarify it, the more we talk ourselves into things that we're doing now. But at the heart of this is the idea is that if we don't have a conscience that's properly aligned with God, we'll never know how, what submission really looks like and how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in relationship to God. And so there's two elements of this. One is a recognition that human authorities are there because God has allowed them to be there. And the other one is having respect for governing authorities. I mean, you and I both know that the general attitude of lots of people, and maybe justifiably so, but even with Christians, is that the greatest evil on earth is governments. And, and we tend to put so much stock in that protecting our way of life, and rightly so, that if we find ourselves in diametrically, philosophically opposed positions, then there's lots of justification to be extremely condescending and negative about government. But his statement is, learn to be subject. It is necessary for us to be subject to governing authorities, not only so we don't avoid punishment, but also for conscience sake towards God. The divine directive is really simply that it's kind of an aorist passive. So our general attitude, it doesn't mean that we can't disagree with things the government does. We're gonna get to that as we move through here. And, but the idea is our general attitude, as Paul talked about in Timothy, is we ought to be praying for them. We ought to be thankful for the, a government that's to protect our sense of freedoms and rights. Regardless of how well they're doing, it, it, in some respects, the general attitude of believers is to have respect and recognize those authorities. But the general principle applies to other things. If you choose to work in a particular company, and you don't, you're not running the company, but if you're working in a company, you're placing yourself under governing authorities for that particular company. And it's very easy to get into a mode where around the water cooler, people whine and complain constantly about policies and procedures and everything else. And what I think generally, it's, it's fine to have a platform to discuss things and seek change within the framework of a company or a place that we work, but I think it's disrespectful for Christians to be sitting around whining and complaining without taking the normal avenues of trying to speak into those situations through the proper channels. Now I know what you're gonna say. I tried the proper channels, they don't work. And the, the attitude is, I think there's, well, now we gotta start doing more extreme things. You'll understand our cultural issues because when nobody's listening, people go to extreme levels to try to get heard. Now, having said that, let me also suggest to you that in defending conscience, there's a divine warning, and it says right in the text, it's, it's necessary to be subject to governing authorities to avoid wrath and judgment. And I think we have to realize that if you and I choose to break the laws of the land, even as Christians, and we get pegged for it, that's not persecution, that's proper punishment. I get tired of Christians who break the law because they disagree with them, and there's, we'll talk about that, but they just, you know, they get a speeding ticket, and it's the police officer's fault for being dumb. Really? How do you go there? And, and so we live in a world that has mastered the ability to not take responsibilities for things. If you don't, just walk into your, your closest elementary school and watch that unfold. It's not only the kids think that they can get away literally with anything, but their parents support it. 
I mean, I've, I've heard stories of uh, not only kids, I mean, they've got cameras everywhere in schools now because what happens is kids will beat up another kid. They'll bring the parents in. The parents will look at the video camera and say, that's not my kid. My kid wouldn't do that. And, and so we live in a world where we have to be careful to say, and I'll go back to my statement last week, we ought to be the best citizens in the whole country. And yet there's room for us to realize that if we're not, then we will get disciplined or punished for the things that we're dealing with. Now, let me pause here for a moment because one of the difficulties we deal with in terms of conscience, and it doesn't start with the government, it starts usually in the way we are brought up, is on the one hand legalism and the other side is liberty. And I want to have a little bit of fun with this in the sense that, well, maybe it won't be much fun, but anyway, it depends where you're at. But legalism for at least Christians often grows up in the church and in our family cultures. And legalism is one of those things that has different levels to it. For instance, when I was, the first one I want to talk about is what I call the minimalist, and I'm not talking about having stuff in your house. I'm talking about minimalists like when I was going to school, whether it was elementary or high school or junior high, whatever it was, even college, we used to have some people in there that hated doing coursework. I don't know if you ever ran into them. I don't know if you are one of them, but, but the whole idea of legalism as a minimalist is that they knew what the standards were to get a passing grade, and their commitment was to do the absolute minimum possible just to pass so they wouldn't get in trouble. And, and so they used the legal process or the, the policies and the procedures to know where the, the, the default lines were so that they could just do enough to get by without getting in trouble. And sometimes that's the way a lot of people operate, is that's, that's, that's sort of their form of legalism. Uh, the second one is what I call being misaligned. I, I, I was uh, chatting with some of the college students beforehand. I said, well, I'm going to chat a little bit about the idea of rule keepers and those who are rule breakers. Now, if you sit in one of those categories, which I'm sure you do, You're either, there's some of us that are wired in such a way that we're all about keeping the rules. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm committed to making that happen. Now, that's a positive thing because it shows respect for an authority, but it also can be a problem. And in the Christian conscience, it can be a problem when the idea of keeping a rule is for one of two reasons. The idea of of this misalignment is either because of fear of people or fear of failure. See, some some people become rule keepers because of their fear of people or their fear of failure. What happens? Well, they grow up and they try to exert their own decision when either there wasn't enough rules or they thought they'd step over the rules and then they got pounded for it and if they are wired in such a way that what other people said makes their life valuable, that they value what other people said, then what they do is they retreat into a a way of life that says, all I'm going to do is I'm going to keep the rules because those are the clear expectations that are committed, communicated to me, and if I do that, then I don't have to be worry about people rejecting me. But the danger is, if you make that a habit, it's very hard to step out in faith because if the rules don't give permission for that, then I'm never going to break those boundaries. And I do know what I'm talking about. 
And, and, and the heartbeat of this is that self-worth is built on the approval of others, and legalism allows others to make up the rules for the way I live. And technically, whether I believe in God or not, my sense of direction in life and my value in life and my purpose of my life is not defined by God, even though I believe in him. It's defined by people around me who say, these are the rules that you have to obey by. In John chapter 4, Jesus had the disciples who had cultural rules that say, you shouldn't be talking to that woman. And so they were shocked that Jesus was talking to her. And they had bought lock, stock, and barrel into the cultural rules and regulations about who you talk to and who you don't. The Samaritan woman was just kind of like, I just can't believe you're talking to me because my life's a train wreck. No pun intended. I can't help it. It just popped into my head. I was, didn't know what it was. But the other problem is fear of failure. Some people are so terrified to step out in faith or outside the rules and the regulations because they're terrified of failure. If I'm in a work environment, if I'm in a certain environment and I only keep the rules and that's it, the reason often some people do it is because if, if this fails, it's not my fault personally, it's the rules that caused it to fail. And so there are a lot of Christians who have a legalism who the rules are a nice safe haven to protect them from feeling personal uh, feelings of failure and shame. Because if I keep the rules and it doesn't work, it's not, it's not me that failed, it's the rules that failed. So it protect, they feel like they're protecting their heart from failure. And that's what happens when we transfer that into our relationship with God, is that our conscience is so built on the approval of others and our fear of failure because we have this perfectionistic production type kind of Christianity or conscience that we're terrified to live by faith because that could get me in trouble and I could fail. And so it's a misaligned sense of legalism. And when we transfer that to the government, then it becomes one of these things that whatever the government says, no matter what's going on, I've got to just do it. Why? Because I could get in trouble. And there's a fair part of that when it says, hey, if you're going to break the laws of the land in general and you disobey those things, then you're going to get in trouble. Now, the last one I'm going to call a myopic sense of legalism. And this one, if none of the other ones got your attention, I'm sure this one will. But our conscience is really driven by a, a Christianity that I'm going to call Americanized or North Americanized or Canadianized, whatever you want to call it. And that is, and I'm not even suggesting it's anyone here, but I've heard this, these stories in other churches, left, right, and center, is that their Christianity and their conscience is all about our way of life in America, not necessarily the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Why do I know that happens? Because I've heard of churches being split and destroyed because of the whole COVID thing that we went through, where the, the idea of my way of life and my freedoms and rights are more important than even the gospel. I've heard uh, pastors, I talked to one pastor and I've mentioned this before, he says, boy, a year and a half ago I would have told you we've got the most loving, caring community of believers that are, want to serve and want people to come to know Jesus. He says, it's kind of like watching The Walking Dead. I don't even recognize half my people anymore. And all I'm saying is that for some, what looks confusing is that people seem to have way more passion 
for the things of our rights and freedoms and our political, than the gospel itself. I mean, they never got this passionate about the gospel. They never got this excited about talking to their neighbors about spiritual things. But if you have kind of a legalistic uh, conscience that's covered by legalism, I don't want to offend my neighbor because they might hate me and I won't be a good neighbor. But if it's my way, the government is kind of this obtuse entity out there that I can, in a sense, like uh, Facebook and social media stuff, I can say whatever I want and I doubt that it's going to come back to haunt me. Now, let me assure you, I think there are critical things that we need to address in terms of government, and we'll try to talk about that a little bit as we move through here. But the general posture of Christians is we ought to be the best citizens possible. But the question I really want to ask you is, what is it that really shapes your conscience as a Christian? What is it that motivates you to make choices? I I made an observation here a couple of weeks ago. I was writing an article for our region, and I said, People will believe all kinds of things, even as Christians, but they rarely will develop convictions about anything. That's why when things happen, we believe a bunch of stuff, but we can't figure out which one applies to this particular situation, so we have no convictions where the line's going to be drawn. And so then we start randomly trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do, and we might be using the right text or the wrong text, but then we're scattered. So it's easy for us to believe a lot and develop convictions on nothing, and then we're helpless. Now, on the other side of legalism is liberty. If the legalists are the rule keepers in whatever fashion it looks like, the ones who are committed to liberty like to make up their own rules. It doesn't mean that they don't uh, have a sense of obeying the government and stuff, but it's, it's a little bit more that the attitude is rules are made to be broken. Uh, it's, it's, let me illustrate it this way. It's like the person who goes to the DMV to renew the, their car tags, and there's like 20 people. They walk in, and they're like, oh, there's 25 people waiting in line ahead of me. So the person who, who has the liberty a- attitude, what they'll do is they'll go up to the person at the counter and just so that no one else hears them, they'll say it in a voice why they need to be an exception to waiting in line behind everybody else because they've got special circumstances, I've got to get to other things, and you really need to allow me to process before everyone else. You ever run into someone like that? So they're the person who always thinks they're an exception to the rule, and they don't have to abide. Now this is maybe in a more minor sense, but the idea is is that they want to make up their own rules. They don't care. The big law is fine, but everything else is negotiable because I'm an exception to what everybody else should live with. It's the person who cuts in line. You know, you're driving down, going to go through the 94 tunnel, and you got some people that will jump in line as soon as they see the line. The others will cut in right on the curve because... I'm not waiting behind all these goofballs, (laughs) right? Now, is that the end of the world? No, but it's, it's kind of the way certain people operate is with this sense of liberty. But the more significant issue is when you went to 1 Peter, you will notice that he makes a statement that he says, live as people who are free, so my, my conscience isn't shackled by rules and regulations, but he says, but don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Really? Why would he have to say that to Christians? Why would he ever have to say that to Christians? I don't know. Maybe because we get to be knuckleheads and we think the rules and stuff don't apply to us. 
that, hey, God will forgive me anyway, so I can go and do whatever I want. Hey, Jesus forgave me. Hey, is this a sin issue? Well, yeah, but God will forgive. Would you like me to go through the list out of Galatians? Causing divisions and factions, immorality, selfishness, greed, gossip. And there's times that we spiritualize stuff and give ourselves permission to do things because that's not what I'm really doing. And so the conflict of of the liberty of being free is that we give excuses that we can, as a covering for evil. And so Paul says, listen, stop treating God like a concierge. You know, I, I go back to the DMV thing. You know, the person who would do there, sometimes they're, they effectively bait the person into letting them go first. Then they'll walk away and brag about, hey, look what God did. You know, I went up there and I was in a hurry and I just, I, I made my appeal. Actually, it was poor, probably more like manipulation. But God worked it out so that I didn't have to wait in line. I got more time to do my own thing. Praise Jesus. Okay. But the confusion of liberty really gets down to this process is what's shaping my conscience? Why do I think I have the freedom to use it for selfish reasons? This, this, what is shaping it? I uh, read an article about a girl who was 17 years old who passed away and her father had asked a particular pastor, this is George Truitt's story, and uh, to do the funeral. And as they of course, he agreed to do it, and uh, at the time, this is a really old, they were gotten the vehicle together afterwards to go, um, uh, to go to the funeral, and the gentleman turned to him, he says, Dr. Truett, when you first came to town, I used to hear you preach every single Sunday. I never missed the Sunday morning service, and it literally, I'd literally have to hold on to the seat in front of me to keep me from going up front when you gave an invitation. And when the congregation sang one of those grand old hymns like Just As I Am Without One Plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, I just had to hold on to the branch in front of me because I was so compelled to come forward. After the service, I would walk the streets for hours. I was miserable. About two or three o'clock in the afternoon, I'd sort of pay myself off with a promissory note. I would promise myself and promise God that next Sunday, next Sunday, I would take my life to him and give it to him. I joined the church, but when the invitation hymn was sung, I froze. I couldn't step out in the aisle. I just couldn't do it, Dr. Truett. I know you are a better preacher now than you were then, but when I hear you preach now, it doesn't move me at all. What's happened? Dr. Truett said in his story, I didn't have the heart to tell him that there is a line, an unseen by men, but when you've crossed crossed it, you've built such a thick barrier that you'll never ever let Jesus in after a while. And one of the things I want to encourage you to think about is to make sure you don't harden your own heart and conscience. People are often very generous and kind that sometimes they'll come up after a message and they're going like, wow, I thought you were speaking right to me. Well, obviously it's the Spirit of God who speaks to you. I'm just sharing what's on the text, hopefully. But then the question is, well, what are you going to do about it? Is it just a nice feeling of conviction that you sort of muse over for a while? The question is, what does God want you to do with that? 
Because I can guarantee you, if we ignore the voice of God and he touches our conscience and we keep pushing it away and ignoring what he does, we're going to harden our hearts to the reality of his voice and we will end up, after a while, being, this is the most boring thing I listen to every week, not the most exciting experience with the Spirit of God. And so the question is, what's shaping your conscience? What's feeding your sensitivity to what's right and wrong? What's touching your spirit and your heart? Hey, for some of us, it's sports, you know? What's the top 10 highlights of shots made in the NBA and the golf world? For others, it's music or arts, or some people get their high going out into the country. We can get enamored by a lot of things, but does God touch your conscience anymore? Are you listening to his voice? Are you responding when he quietly whispers in your life that something's off in my life? And responding in obedience to it. So when we talk about conscience and relationship to government, it always starts with my, how healthy my conscience is with God. Because we will never be able to respond properly to government if we don't have a healthy, thriving, spiritually anchored conscience that's drinking deeply of the presence of the Spirit of God and allowing Him to shape my conscience. I mean, it's very easy that sitting here, you might look at your own heart and go, I don't know if anything moves me. I watch too many adventure movies and special effects at Hollywood and nothing surprises me anymore. Nothing moves me because it's all highly exaggerated and not real. So what's our response to the government? Well, let me say this, first of all. The Christian life is not about avoiding punishment or personal failure. It's usually more typical of those who come out of a legalistic background is that their whole life is spent trying not to fail or making sure they don't make mistakes. Believe me, (laughs) I've been there. I know what that journey is. And it's not only exhausting, it's self-condemning. Because I start setting standards up in my life that God hasn't even set, and I keep pushing the envelope and moving it forward, and it's all about performance and all about perfectionism. And there's Christians that are probably sitting in this room who grew up like I did, who the whole goal of the Christian life is I can't screw up. But then the question is, who's going to determine that? And frankly, it doesn't matter for a person who has legalism woven into their spirit because the first person who makes a criticism of something they've done, it's over. We are to live by faith, not by fear. We are to live drawing and being nurtured by the Spirit of God to allow Him to shape our conscience so it's not trapped in legalism or it's not about selfishly living out my liberty and my freedom for selfish gains. In the Old Testament, the law was primary, and you see people doing this all the time. We keep bringing the Old Testament law. It's still relevant, but it's not the primary point of authority in our life. It has shifted from the law to being Christ himself. It's, my, it's this 
not just relationship with Christ, but the power of his personal presence in terms of helping me to live out life. It, it starts internally. In fact, a couple of verses down in Romans 13, he's going to say, listen, if you want to fulfill all the law, love, some, love God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. If you do that, you will always triumph and, and be over top of what the law expects. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew? His whole comment in Matthew was, listen, you've heard, don't commit adultery. But he says, hey, I'm going to tell you, if you lust after a woman with your, in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So anyone can claim, well, I haven't done this, but no one can claim they haven't done this. And so the standard of the character of Christ will always trump the law. If you want freedom from the law, allow your conscience to be driven by Christ. Because this will make you feel more guilty, this will give you joy in allowing your conscience to cause you to live in a way that honors Christ. So what if the government makes laws that aren't right or moral? Well, what do we do, protest or boycott? <laughs> I, I remember, you know, back when we grew up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, all these pornography stores would open up. So every Christian church on the planet was out boycotting with signs. And they loved it. Because all that we did is draw all the TV cameras to them and they got free advertising because Christians were boycotting everything. So what do we do? Do we protest? Do we boycott? Well, we can't dive into this completely, but let me give you a couple of examples. When Daniel found himself in captivity in a pagan government, and they were going to stuff food in him that violated his conscience in terms of what was pure, what did he do? Well, he didn't get signs and protest. He made up his mind. He had convictions. He just didn't believe this stuff. Well, we're not in the same situation, so I guess it doesn't apply. He had a conviction he wasn't going to defile himself. So what did he do? He went to the authority that was over him, and he made an appeal to say, listen, could we try something different? And it tells us that God granted him favor, in his, and so they did it, and by doing that, they proved to be healthier than the rest of the guys that were trained, so they flipped everything over to feeding them the way Daniel wanted to eat. And before we start pulling out the signs and boycotting and leading revolutions, I think we've got to go through the channels of appealing to people who are above us to change things, and one person can make a difference. Just because the government made a law doesn't mean it's right or moral. We don't just blindly, unilaterally obey the government because they're not the final authority in our life. God is. Daniel chapter 6, they made a law that you can only worship and pray to, what's his face? What did David do? Well, he didn't go and protest I'm not saying, you know, I'm just saying that's what he, he didn't do that. What did he do? He went back up into his chamber and he prayed like he had developed a habit the whole time. He didn't put it behind closed doors or whatever. He went through the same routine. Of course, there was guys looking for it and he said, I'm willing to live with the consequences of my conscience and my convictions even if I die. Esther did the same thing. Remember, we're going to, Haman designed this law, got the king's favor to it, let's go slaughter all the Jews. What did she do? She made an appeal to the king by risking her life to go in when she wasn't invited 
but she made an appeal. It's a fairly involved scenario, but she exposed the, the, the lie and the truth that was going on, had to be transparent about her own heritage, but she appealed to the king to protect her people. And often we don't do that. We just want to complain that everything's wrong. And my encourage is, one person makes a huge difference if they're willing to go to the time and the trouble to say, listen, I'm going to appeal this. I'm going to go to the, the authorities that are over me, and I'm going to invite them to think about this differently. And so the conscience in relationship to God is critical. If we don't have that wired in, it's really hard to know what to do. And if we have lots of beliefs but no convictions, we have no idea what to do. But we need to realize that conscience is directly related to God's work in us. We can't ignore that. We can't just assume it. Conscience and motivation uh, is from God on how he wants us to act. And it's our conscience towards God, as 1 Peter says. And we'll talk about that in the next, in next week as we think about what happens when you're in a work environment and we've got bosses that are doing stuff that are out of line. There was a story back again in the 1890s. A man was driving his car past some people's property and he had both windows open. It was the time where they had these top interesting hats and the wind blew through and blew it off his head and it rolled into someone's yard and he felt like he'd be trespassing. Of course, this obviously was a while ago. He thought he'd be trespassing so he just abandoned it and drove on. Well, apparently the, the mother in the house found the hat and... Uh, for 45 years, they shared it amongst their family. They just grabbed it and shared it. Everybody wore it till it was completely worn out. But then after 45 years, Mrs. McDonald finally went out and put in an advertisement looking for the owner of the hat. Her statement was, it's been on my conscience for 45 years. You got anything that's been on your conscience for five years or ten years? Something that God spoke to you about a long time ago? Just never done anything about it. See, one of the things is not just conscience towards government, but conscience towards God, but it's our conscience towards ourselves. And I want to emphasize this. I believe strongly that our moral ground and groundedness is anchored in our relationship with God. And I think there's three things that inform our conscience or need to. One is it needs to be spirit-directed. If you have trouble listening to the voice of the Spirit of God speaking into your life, you're going to have trouble knowing how to fuel your conscience. The second one is it needs to be scripturally informed. If you don't pick this up for nothing more than just being a ritual, but I need to know the wisdom of God on how to live, you're going to have trouble with your conscience. Something else is going to teach you how to make choices. I desperately wish, although it wasn't his fault, my dad wasn't a believer, so he taught me literally nothing in terms of God's wisdom growing up. And now I'm regretting all the things that I didn't learn because... I didn't have anyone to frame it properly. And finally, it needs to be compelled by the Savior. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, the love of Christ compels me. 
that he died for, one, for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. And the question is, is our conscience compelled by the lo- our love for Christ? And so at the end of Peter, there are some things that ought to be typical of a Christian whose conscience is healthy. There's four things that he talks about. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Here's where I want to put in my parenthetical things. Even if you have divergent political views, love the brotherhood. Because our, our conscience can't be just tied into government. We have a higher authority, and that's God's. Doesn't mean we can't speak to this. Daniel made it very clear. You can make a huge difference if you're willing to make the right appeals. Fear God and honor the king. And a Christian conscience, I think, is committed to those things because it's scripturally informed. I think it's what the Spirit of God would want us to do. And it's compelled by the Savior. Next week... We'll try to hit the rubber where the road is. Wonder if you're living right in the middle of it, whether it's work or school or whatever. I can, I'll, I'll just give you a warning. It probably won't be any more fun and comfortable than this one, but anyway. I want to finish with a story. Uh, the White House collection uh, is an interesting thing. They've got a, a letter that was written to President Cleveland, written back in September 1895. Sorry, I'm using all these illustrations from the 1800. I guess it exposes my age or something. (laughs) The letter said this, to His Majesty, President Cleveland. Dear President, I am in a dreadful state of mind, and I thought I would write and tell you all. About two years ago, as near as I can remember, I think it was two years, I used two postage stamps that had been used on other letters, perhaps more than twice. I did not realize what I had done until lately, and my mind is constantly turning on the subject, and I think, I think of it night and day. Now, dear President, will you please forgive me, and I promise I will never do it again. Enclosed, you will find the cost of three stamps, and please forgive me, for I was then but 13 years old. For I am heartily sorry for what I have done, from one of your subjects. You know, it seems to me that it would be kind of refreshing to have a people who are so sensitive to the Spirit of God that they live way above what the law requires. And they make something seem so petty and so little but it's in the White House collection of somebody who had a conscience that was so above even where we live today that we're reading about it today to understand what a conscience can possibly do. You want to make a difference in this world? We need to have a conscience 
that is bathed and driven by the Spirit of God, informed by the Scriptures, and compelled by the Savior. Because our great appeal is grounded in the Gospel, and I'm absolutely convinced there's no limit to what difference we can make, even one person can make, with a conscience that is clearly anchored to Christ.